Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey folks, it's Reed. Listen, we're seeing videos and hearing reports that Trump crazies are intimidating voters as they try to drop off ballots and vote early. It's wrong and it may be illegal. They must be stopped and held accountable. So I need you to do two things. First, if you or a friend feel threatened, call the non-emergency number of your local police and report them. Second, call the voter protection hotline, 866-OUR-VOTE, and report any and all issues you see at the polls. Memorize this number, store it in your phone, text it to your friends. There will be a team of voting experts standing by. Gang, we won't get through this if we don't get through it together. Next week, we're going to win, but we won't do it without you. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by award-winning journalist Kyle Spencer, whose latest book, Raising Them Right, The Untold Story of America's Ultra-Conservative Youth Movement and Its Plot for Power, is now available wherever fine books are sold. In addition to her book, she contributes to a number of outlets, including The New York Times and Politico Magazine. Today, she's coming to us from Brooklyn, New York. Kyle, welcome. Well, thank you for having me, Reed. It's a pleasure. So... As I told you before we started, this book, it's 280 some pages and every last one of them is worth the read. There's so many things. The Cow Palace, 1964, Barry Goldwater, and all the libertarian nerdy kids who loved him. This is where it goes back to, right? When we think about this stuff, I think often, Kyle, we get stuck in that, well, Trump came down the escalator seven and a half years ago and that's where all this started. But I'll tell you, even as someone who grew up in the Republican Party, but was an operatives kid, right? So I was never an activist. I never wanted anything to do with being a young Republican, a college Republican, like the nerds, 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 wanted nothing to do with it. We have to remember that, Kyle, they've been working on this for nearly 60 years. Yeah, they have. And I think, you know, one of the things that you find a lot with progressives, Democrats, left wingers is that they often think what's happened here is happenstance. It's accidental. It's the people. It's not. It was strategic and it was planned. Long term plan. You know, I'm a former Republican. I'm an independent now. And that's one of the things that, you know, we try and remind our Democratic friends of whether or not it's on the sort of philosophical perspective, the purely political perspective the ideological perspective or the financial perspective is that they are relentless, they're well-resourced, and they're very organized. Like, to your point, none of this is a mistake. Yeah. I mean, the thing that's so interesting about Republicans and Democrats from the get-go is that they're so characteristically different. I mean, they really have different personalities. And the parties have different personalities. You know, so you have the Republicans who are business oriented, organized, hierarchical, not afraid of authority. You know, the common thing is Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line. 
by the book, orderly, you know, and Democrats tend to be a little more chaotic. They don't really like authority or each other or each other. But yeah, they're so different. And I think that's one of the reasons that they operate differently. And I mean, Democrats are like almost kind of win things by accident sometimes, and they don't really kind of get that. So, yeah. As I said, you know, when you come up in the Republican Party as a campaign person, not necessarily as an activist like these folks are, although the two are blending, I think, more every day, is just win, right? Like, you must win. That is the thing. People won't remember the campaign. You'll be in power or your person will be in power, and then you can pursue your goals, espouse your values, whatever it is. And, you know, I think the other part, too, is for Democrats, it's like we want to win, but we want to win the right way. And oftentimes they need someone like a Bill Clinton or a Barack Obama to sort of lead the charge into the future. And something that we could talk about a little bit later here in the book is, and I've seen this up close, Kyle, is that they have largely left the countryside and local and state elections to the Republicans. I talked to a lot of activist groups, a lot of folks who are out there doing the good work of the pro-democracy movement. Almost to a person, they're outside the superstructure of the Democratic Party. Oh, yeah. I mean, the thing that's fascinating right now and really alarming about the Democrats is if you want to raise I'm in a lot of rooms right now listening to folks try to sell donors, Democratic donors on supporting candidates, supporting grassroots groups. You know what you do when you want to get money from Democrat from donors is you want to you need to tell them immediately that, you know, the party's a mess, that you're working outside the party, that you get it and that you don't want to have anything to do with the party and that they shouldn't worry that your money is going to get caught up in the party politicking. That is such a damning reality for Democrats that to get money, the brand is so bad right now that in order to get money, you have to basically as a Democrat say, I don't have anything to do with that brand. I don't even like that brand. You know, as we're talking about your book here, it seems like a lot of the kids that you follow here, the Charlie Kirks of the world, the Candace Owens of the world, the other guy, Cliff, uh, what's his name? Cliff Maloney. Do you think they really believe the stuff they say, or do you think they're cynical like Ted Cruz or Ron DeSantis or some of the higher ups in the conservative orchestra? Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of depends on the person. I think someone like Charlie Kirk always convinces himself of what he's saying. I mean, but Charlie Kirk started as an ideologue who really believed in very classic and traditional economic conservative values and ideas, which those are decent ideas. Those are valuable ideas, right? Small government family, Second Amendment rights, individualism, ruggedness. I mean, all of those things. So he believed in those things. And that was what he pushed originally. And then once he met Trump and latched onto Trump, he kind of threw a lot of those out the window and latched onto some of these Trumpy ideas, which often, as a lot of us know, really have actually nothing to do with the conservative ideology. But once he latched onto Trump, I think he convinced himself that now these Trump ideas were good ideas. He morphed and he morphed and he was able to justify it. But someone like Candace Owens, who I know a lot of people know about and see and watch videos of her, she is a celebrity looking for an idea to latch onto. I think that she would, in my estimation, take any idea that she could if she thought it furthered her celebritum. It's interesting that you talk about that because it almost feels like, and we see this even now with this new attorney that Trump's literally trotting all over the country with him, is it's amazing how quickly and how magnetizing that sort of Trump celebrity insanity and being part of the party with Don Jr. and Kim Guilfoyle and everybody else. Like, it just sucks these people in, Kyle. 
It's amazing. It's unbelievable how much people want to be around Trump and in his inner circle. And it's really hard for outsiders to understand. But I mean, I remember hanging out with these young kids and these kids, I mean, you know, three, four years ago, they already had very, very close access to Trump. I mean, I'm hanging out with 20 year olds who are talking about being in the White House, watching TV with Trump. Oh, we love Melania. She's so great. Or, you know, Charlie's PR person running around all the time talking about hanging out with POTUS and we've got to this and we're that and blah, blah, blah. I mean, they were so in it and so excited about it. I mean, it was like so exciting for them. And I think that's one of the things that, again, we don't necessarily understand about what Trump offers people and that offers his disciples before he betrays them is they get access. He gives Joe Schmo, any old guy who wants to be loyal to him, any kid on the street who wants to, you know, follow his lead, access. Right. You mentioned it one thing, like Charlie had his favorite couch in the White House. Like, what? I worked at the White House and I never got to find a couch in the West Wing, right? Like, they never let me in that place, right? Like, I got to go there for my departure photo, right? Like, he's just hanging out in the lobby. I mean, I think that is what's so odd about the Trump presidency and what kind of latches all these hanger-ons onto that White House and continuing onto Trump is because of this sense of like, you could get access and you could be an insider. And I mean, you think about all the characters that were hanging around the White House. It's kind of unbelievable. One unqualified person after the other. Yes. And if he runs and wins again, the quote unquote qualification, these people will look like Mensa members compared to what will be coming next. So let's talk about this. So I want to talk about not only the fact that there's Turning Point USA and there's Young Americans for Freedom, there's almost an unending number of organizations, the Liberty Institute, Council for National Policy, like all of these. And, you know, going back to what I said before, Kyle, one, how long did it take you to map all these different groups? And secondly, did it surprise you as you were doing this work? Because I know it took you a couple of years to write the book, just how much money there is for this kind of movement. I mean, it's unbelievable. So I'd love to tell you how I came to the book, because I think that sort of, it gives you a sense of my my entree. So I was writing stories for Politico and for the New York Times, and I was, was on college campuses a lot. And I started to encounter these guys who, these pro-gun kids, who were basically pushing this campus carry legislation on college campuses, which is essentially for those who don't know, you know, allows a kid to sit in math class with a gun in his backpack. Right. And when you talk to these guys, they would tell you that they were doing this on their own. It was like their thing, you know, solo effort. And I just didn't believe it. I didn't think these guys knew how to get to the local frat house. I definitely didn't think they knew how to get to the state legislature because this was a lot of lobbying state legislators to pass these laws. Right. So I started do looking through tax docu documents and organizations and budgets and annual reports. And lo and behold, I discovered that these organizations were being heavily funded by, of course, the NRA, but also the more radical gun owners of America. And that these kids were on these campuses looking like they were pushing these kind of youth movements, but they were not. They were pushing very, very adult movements. And sophisticated. I mean, this is a sophistication that is a former fraternity guy, I can tell you, almost none of them have. Exactly. So once I discovered that, I thought the NRA cannot and Gun Owners of America cannot be the only right wing organization doing this. And one of the things as a journalist is I always think in threes, you know, if you see something happening somewhere, you assume this has got to be happening other places. And then you kind of look out for it. So I did. And of course, I found that pro-life groups and climate denying groups and uh, skeletal government libertarian groups, they were all pumping money onto college campuses. And when I really laid it out, millions and millions and millions of dollars landing on college campuses 
very kind of clandestinely because none of these groups ever want to let you know that they're getting funded by anybody. But the thing that I think is important is to see that once I saw a little bit, the way that I kind of wound my way up to sort of start to see the big picture was I went to the Leadership Institute, which I'm sure you've heard you know about. Yes. In fact, one of our senior advisors, I was telling her about your book this morning, and she in the 80s attended the Leadership Institute. And she said it was a badge of honor. She said to get the call to go was you were in. Well, okay, so two things about that. One, and I bet she'll tell you she got incredible training, right? I bet she'll tell you that they taught her everything she knows. So that's one thing. And talk about brutal, being brutal, everything to win, bleeding for the cause. These are all ideas that these young people are taught at the Leadership Institute. The other thing is that it used to be that you had to wait for the call uh, for the Leadership Institute. But last year, the Leadership Institute spent something like $25 million. So it's an honor, but they want everybody and they can't afford to train everybody who wants to be trained. So that's the Leadership Institute. But what happened when I went and I sat in on these mind-numbingly boring trainings, which were incredible because they were so granular. It's like, if you want to have a table on a college campus, make sure it looks like this and make sure your stuff looks like this and make sure this use this color and make sure you're behind the table, not, you know, all of these stuff. And so I'm in these training sessions and I'm looking at all these kids and I'm realizing they're all representing groups. This guy's representing Young Americans for Liberty. This guy's here with some young NRA group. This guy's here with the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. I mean, all of the groups were sending their kids to the Leadership Institute to train. And so that's when I started to see like the Leadership Institute's the umbrella, and then there are all of these groups underneath it. And so that's how I kind of cracked it open. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, I couldn't believe it. Well, so in the late 80s, my dad, who worked on Capitol Hill in Republican politics for many years, ran something called the American Campaign Academy. And this was back when, quote unquote, soft money you couldn't use it for anything. This is pre-McCain-Feingold. You know, it was only 13, 14, 15 years after Watergate, right? So there was just not a lot you could do with this. I'm 12, I think. And this just gives you a sense of how long I've been preparing for the nerdery that like every morning they would have to do a typing test. And my dad literally said, when you can type better than the 12-year-old, you don't have to type anymore. But then after they did the typing test, they had to look through the Washington Post and write a press release on something they said. And then it was, I think it was four to six weeks maybe. And every day, Kyle, was the exact same thing. Every morning you write a press release. Then they bring in somebody who was very well known in the political operation, somebody who understood fundraising, somebody who understood polling, all of that stuff. And it just, I don't know how many people went through. They were probably in their 20s but probably hundreds, maybe thousands over the course of a couple of years. And it just never stopped. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly the way Leadership Institute is. And they're constantly evolving. So now you can go to the Leadership Institute and you can get classes on how to use social media and how to get your messages viral. And of course, right when we started seeing all this stuff with these school boards, immediately you can go to Leadership Institute now and learn how to run for school board office, you know, run for a seat on your school board. And then there's PragerU, right, which is the online university of Dennis Prager, who, you know, I actually saw speak probably 10 years ago and was a little kooky for my taste because I was a Republican, but I was never a conservative. But like, I thought that he had an interesting take on things, but more philosophically than politically. But now I don't want to make it all about Trump, but they've all been sucked into the vortex that he's created where it's the white grievance, right? Everybody's out to get you kind of stuff. Was this always incipient and somebody like a Trump sort of allowed it out into the ether? 
I mean, I don't think he's the alpha and the omega of it, but he certainly allowed it to be mainstreamed. Yeah. Well, first, I'll just say about Dennis Prager that I think Dennis, I mean, Dennis Prager, if you take his politics aside, is kind of a quirky old sage who actually, when he's not talking about politics and talking about how to be a friend, uh, you know, he's got like some nice ideas, right? You know, he's this guy from Brooklyn, but he really radicalized under Trump, like a lot of folks. And so once he started radicalizing, he just went nuts. I mean, his ideas now are kind of crazy. I mean, recently he did some video, I think, where he was talking about uh, incest and, and, and going on and on and on about incest as some sort of argument he was trying to eventually make about, I don't know, transgender kids or something. I don't know what. But I mean, he's gotten he's gone off the deep end. But yes, I think what happened was for me, the way I really look at this radicalization for a lot of these groups and the reason that Trump became so appealing to them and they were so willing to latch on to his ideas is because of Obama. This is reaction to Obama. And these guys hated Obama. And I don't like to throw around the racism card at all, and I'm not going to do it, but it just struck me, you know, that the hatred about this guy, and I think a lot of it had to do with this guy's smart, he's eloquent, he's cocky, he knows what he's doing. When he was in the Illinois state legislature, they were worried even then, and they didn't like him because he wasn't playing local politics the way you were supposed to play local politics. He had his grassroots groups and he knew he had to go directly to young people. And then he also knew he had to go right up to donors. And he didn't do all that handshaking stuff. So Democrats didn't like him either at the time. But so it was really a reaction to Obama. And the thing about Charlie Kirk, who obviously is featured a lot in my book, is that Charlie was in a high school that was diversifying. And Obama was beloved. And Charlie was a conservative. And no one wanted to hear from Charlie because he had these really, first of all, he was kind of obnoxious. He also had ideas that people were not that excited about. And, it, you know, it seems like that really pissed him off. And the other thing that it seems, you know, might have pissed the guy off was that his high school had gone from majority white to majority black and Latino. And he saw up close a kind of changing America. And I think his story and the reason I tell his story is because I think it's very indicative of what you see with these young kids, particularly these young white guys who have latched on to the far right and these radical conservatism that they might not call themselves the far right, but they really are. It is this fear and anxiety about this replacement and this loss of status. It's interesting when all of these things come together because another Chicagoland resident, a guy named Bob Pape at the University of Chicago, has done a significant amount of research into the radicalization in America. And it's not the 18-year-old white guy with no job prospects. It is middle-aged white guys who live in areas not that were won by Trump, but that were won by Biden that were moving more diverse as far as their ethnicity, religion, et cetera, et cetera. So in some ways, Charlie was the canary in the coal mine on this, even if he didn't know it. No, exactly. And one of the things I'm, I you know, came to understand is that these suburbs does not look like the suburbs that a lot of us remember. They are diversifying and they are black and Latino and Asian American. And, you know, the suburbs are not this kind of lily white area. So you have this. And I think that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And so that is part of this reaction, I think. And, you know, it's, I think we kind of look for these complex reasons why we're seeing what we're seeing in this country. But I think this anxiety about the changes that are taking place are just really fundamental to what we're seeing. Yes. And I think not only is it the changes, it's that I think that the changes in some ways are the first of their kind for people like us, candidly, right? Just as an aside, I got into a, a bit of a spat with some dear friends of mine 
they have not been vaccinated. And the husband said, I was discriminated against. I couldn't get on this airplane. I couldn't leave the country. I couldn't attend these dinners. And I thought to myself, okay, so now you know how it feels and you're not a fan. But also that was a choice, right? You made a choice to take that option. And those were the consequences. Whereas in some respects, there are a lot of folks who have to deal with those sorts of consequences through no fault of their own. I think this is such a great point because once you get this white guy who feels like he's being described, oh, now it's not okay. Now <laughs> it's not okay. But yeah, I mean, God, I mean, the vax thing is just drives me nuts about the vax thing and conservatives and Republicans is, you know, what happened to, you know, you get your free speech, you get to say what you want, you get to not get vaccinated, but then, you know, a company that doesn't want you to get the other people that is serving sick say, no, you can't get on our plane. That's freedom, people. That's freedom. So, you know, I want to talk about freedom because there's this libertarianism that runs through everything else, which now I'll be honest with you, Kyle, I sort of flirted with libertarianism. I was at the CPAC speech that you described where Rand Paul gave his speech when he played Pink Floyd and the place went bananas. And I wrote a column on it, which I think has since gone. But I was like, is this the future of the party? Because, you know, I know that he gave a very similar speech to a bunch of kids at Berkeley and they'd gone crazy for him, too. And so it was just a different way of thinking. Now, Paul has since, you know, he's also been sucked into the hurricane. But the thing I've always found about libertarianism, after I took a step back, was like, it's not a governing ethos. It's sort of like, I'll tell you what I'm willing to do, whether you like it or not. And oh, by the way, the more power I have, the less you can tell me what to do. Right. And, you know, for me, when you talk to libertarians, I get the appeal, actually. I think that there's a lot about why libertarianism is then something that's not so challenging to sell to college kids. But I mean, the problem with libertarianism, as far as I'm concerned, is be a libertarian, but don't be in community with me. Right. You know, you can be a libertarian on an island and isolate yourself on an island. But once you're living with other people, you know, it's a privilege to live with other people, but it also you have responsibilities. But that's the part they don't want. I know they don't want any of the responsibility. And, you know, I understand your your thoughts about libertarianism. I was a college student in the 90s and the conservatives that were interested were libertarians. They were like, oh, what about this idea? This is kind of interesting. You know, like it was palatable. It didn't wasn't as extreme. And I think the reality is that at least in those days, it was more theoretical. It was kind of like, how about this? You know, so, I mean, if you talk about Rand Paul and Ron Paul, there's a lot to recommend them and a lot of uh, crossover appeal. You know, these are guys that believe the criminal justice reform. Let's get out of these wars that we're in, these endless wars, legalize marijuana, help small businesses so that they're not caught in red tape. These can be very appealing. But a couple of things. One is that there's a dark side to that because it means no rules for anybody. And it's almost utopian, Kyle, that it expects that everybody will act rationally in their own best interests within their sphere of existence. But really, that's not how it works. Yeah. One of the ways that this libertarianism is sold on college campuses and it's sold really effectively is to play on these palatable ideas, right? And lure these kids in. And I have looked at documents that Young Americans for Liberty produces for its recruiters. And two things are interesting. One, they're told to sell this like a bag of potato chips, right? They actually train how to sell it. And the second thing is that they're told 
you know, sell them on what is interesting or appealing to the person you're talking to. And then it's only later where they start to get pamphlets and books and whatnot that relate to some of their more radical ideas, which is no taxation, skeletal government, get rid of the IRS, get rid of the Department of Education, you know, get rid of civil rights, get rid of civil rights, right? These really draconian ideas that most people consider incredibly alarming. But they sell these things pretty well. They package them well. And these young people are taught by the conservative movement and by the elders how to package these ideas so that they can present them as fairly moderate before they get people in and start to introduce them to ideas that are obviously not moderate. And it's weird because, I mean, there is a libertarian party in this country, but they're the people who like the guy in his underpants shows up at the national convention and he's running for president. But here's something else you said. At the hotel, I was immediately escorted to one of the conference rooms down a small flight of stairs where an eccentric hodgepodge of libertarian state representatives, including a man in suspenders, a woman with a long braid running down her back, and a few lavishly bearded fellows were listening to a workshop on the ills of, quote, red tape regulations. Libertarians are weird. Oh, yeah, they're weird. And, you know, they sell well on college campuses because they kind of sell themselves as, you know, we're the pot smoker. Oh, they, you know, pot smoke, you know, these conferences is libertarian youth conferences and everybody smells a weed. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of weed smoking <laughs> and they all dress terribly. They're wacky. They're totally weird. Like the Turning Point kids are like suave and they're handsome and they're dressed well. And the libertarians are just mess pots. But the thing about this libertarianism and the folks that it attracts is it really does attract someone who's like, I don't really relate to the mainstream. I don't really relate to these other college kids around me. The kind of bringing in people and saying, here's a group that you can identify with and that you can hang out with and that will be your friends, even though you're a little wacky, is alluring. But that seems to be a massive part of one, our societal issues, right? Which you got a bunch of young guys who have no capacity whatsoever to relate to other people, especially women, right? That's the one thing between your book, the book I interviewed the guy about QAnon and about the Proud Boys is it's all these lonely guys. You know, for young people, we live in a very lonely society right now. And I write about this in the book, and I've been thinking a lot about it, how oddly in tuned conservatives are to how people feel in this society we live in right now and how to both communicate with them and find them. And this isolation that people feel is something that I think to some extent Democrats are a little bit out to lunch with and they can't seem to figure out how to communicate with those people. Whereas the Republicans, oddly enough, since they are a traditional party, tend to sort of like old school things, not interested in the future. They are the ones that have seemed to really understand this internet age that we live in and how to both talk to people about it, but also how isolating it can be. I mean, you see Charlie Kirk talk about it all the time, right? Charlie Kirk talks all the time about when he's not talking about his Christian nationalism, he's talking about young guys who are suicidal and sad and depressed and lonely. And you talked about the differences between, I think it's not just the parties, I think it's in the context of America, conservative versus liberal. I'm going to call it ultra MAGA versus progressive that there is more in the middle than there is on the extremes, but we're just bombarded by the extremes all the time. And do you think the sort of liberal piece of the country, not only is it being vastly outspent by, you know, conservative entities, you even said Democrats don't have a leadership institute that on college campuses, you know, I think it was in 2017 was the year you mentioned, 
they were outspent more than two to one on this college recruitment stuff. And then sometimes Democrats and liberals sort of offer Republicans the hammer with which to hit them, too, which is there's a policy that they believe in desperately, but is fundamentally out of touch with the country. But they're not going to let go of it. First of all, you know, progressives can be their own worst enemy, particularly on college campuses where they can be intolerant and they can be pushing ideas that other people are still finding like they need to catch up to. So you see that a lot, right? And I think that's an important thing to recognize and that it's very easy on some of these college campuses to look at some of these progressive kids and say, this guy doesn't want to let you speak. He doesn't care about your free speech. He won't let you have a differing opinion, right? But what's also true is that on a lot of these big state schools, these conservative groups are just as active, more active in many cases, because they have a lot more money and they're just as just in people's faces and use even more bullying tactics. And what the right has done really well and what the young people are taught at the Leadership Institute is to weaponize your phone, which is that whenever you see a progressive acting crazy, and we know it's not hard to find a progressive acting crazy, when you find one, videotape it, we'll edit it, we'll throw it up on the web and it'll go viral. And once it goes viral and we do that enough times, we can convince the entire country that progressives are out of control on college campuses and won't let anybody get a word in edgewise. And again, that is true to some extent, but not at all to the extent that these guys are leading you to believe. But I mean, it all ladders up to, you know, the same kind of stuff, right? Which is we're good. They're bad. We have traditional values. They don't, you know, they're socialists, right? You mentioned that was it Benny Johnson, noted plagiarist goes to Cuba, tells this story like, look, I ain't moving to Cuba and I don't want to live in a communist country. Right. But like this is the kind of stuff that they ascribe. Now, I think, Kyle, here's the cumulative effect, though, is if you go back to 1964 and every part of the conservative movement has been saying for 60 years, really, let's call it 80 or 90 years since Roosevelt, they're a bunch of pinko leftist commies. Right. And with the exception of maybe Kennedy and then Clinton and then Obama, who's now, quote unquote, a moderate. This has been a war that the conservatives have been waging since the New Deal. And it's changed and it's morphed. But it's always had the same thing, which is government is bad. You know, Reagan, you know, I think it was taken out of context. And I want to get back to context for a second is, you know, I'm here from the government. And I'm here to help. When the truth is, is like, you know, Stuart Stevens, one of our senior advisors, quotes that great line, keep your government hands off my social security. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, we know this is a big problem the Democrats have in general is that they get easily defined by for years. They just they allow themselves to get defined by Republicans all the time. And they spend all their time trying to defend some label that they've been given by the Republicans. So they're constantly on the defensive. But the thing that you see on college campuses is that and this is a serious problem, is you have all these kids who arrive on these college campuses with very little civics education, very little history. And so when somebody tells them that this guy next to them in class is a socialist, they don't ask a lot of questions. And when Benny Johnson and when Charlie Kirk and when all of these youth organizers talk about socialism, they confound it with communism and they basically lie about their peers. I mean, they lead people to believe that when somebody is a social Democrat or even believes in good government, that it means that they believe that we should turn our country, like you said, into Cuba, 
and that these kids on the campus who are progressive actually want the United States to turn into Venezuela where everybody's eating rats in the street. You know, like they just tell people this stuff that's absolutely untrue. And you've got these kids who aren't that well educated, don't have a great history background. So they go, oh, okay, you know, you told me twice, you told me three times, now I believe you. Well, to stay on the campus for a second, you know, I was a fraternity guy in the mid 90s at the University of Texas at Austin. And even in that fraternity house, it was white t-shirts, jeans, red wings, right? Cowboy boots, ropers, as we called them. Cigarettes, beer, girls, really all anybody cared about. But guns everywhere that often went off inside the house. But also casual racism, never-ending casual racism. But my concern is that the young men of my cohort, right, who are now going into those fraternity houses, Kyle, are hearing this stuff. Maybe they heard it from their dad. Maybe they didn't. But now it's okay. And it's not just okay inside the walls of the Alpha Beta Gamma house, right? It's okay everywhere. And I can talk to you however I want. I can carry a nine millimeter on my hip. I can tell a girl what I think of her. I can be an asshole to everybody because now the assholery of America has become mainstream. And I feel like a lot of these groups are complicit in that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's the thing that you really see is they latched on to they love this. You know, this is the, the Trump empowerment that, you know, find your inner bully, find your asshole and let him out. Right. Right. Own the libs. Own the libs. And, you know, young people, college kids are susceptible to that. Some of them are susceptible to that. But I do want to say something about progressive kids. Progressive kids get so much shit, right? They get so much shit for being out of touch or pushing their ideas or intolerant or whatever. And I like, really like to remind people that, you know, progressive kids are the ones that push for civil rights. Progressive kids are the ones, when I was in college in the 90s, who were running around with their water bottles and pointing your finger at anyone who was carrying a plastic bag. And we used to think, oh, these guys are such losers. Look at them with their water bottles. And they were obnoxious and they were in your face and they were patronizing. And then you think, now I think, thank God they were doing that. Thank God, right? They were starting a movement that we now consider like extremely important. Everybody carries water bottles everywhere and cares a lot about the environment. Gay rights, gay marriage. These are all crazy progressive ideas. So my point I want to make is that right now what's happening with progressives on college campuses and this idea about what you can and cannot say is really a realignment of who's in control on college campuses, right? Like, I own this campus too, and you can't really just come here and say nasty things to me and insult me. Like, that's not okay. Like, I'm an African-American on this campus. I'm no longer a guest, right? And I think that's very unsettling for white Americans who feel like they are used to kind of being in charge. Like, oh, I do get to insult people. I don't have to see you. I don't have to wonder whether I'm insulting you. And so there's that pushback. And that's what you're talking about, this pushback of not only am I going to do it in my fraternity now, now I'm going to go out and actually walk around and be an asshole just because I want to make a point. So let me ask you this as we look forward a little bit. What happens to the Charlie Kirks of the world when he's not a 20-something, but, you know, he's 40? Like, are there people in the pipeline that say, take this over? Yeah. So, I mean, first question is, what's Charlie going to do? Is Charlie going to run for president? Does Charlie want to be president? Or does Charlie want to be the next Rush Limbaugh? Or does Charlie want to be an evangelical leader? Or all of the above? I'm not entirely clear, right? So it kind of depends on where Charlie goes. But I think that there are going to be a lot of mini Charlies, because one of the points I make in the book is that these conservatives are really, really celebrity-making machines now. And Charlie works very hard to co-brand himself with other people. Like Charlie was very influential in bringing Candace up because he saw Candace as useful to him. 
you know, he really starts palling around with Candace when his group is getting a lot of shit for various activities that people considered racist, right? Then suddenly he's BFFs with Candace Owens. But he likes to latch on to other people and create new celebrities. And one of the things Turning Point USA does a lot of is creating influencers, training influencers. So I think you're going to see a lot of mini Charlies pop up. And who knows who's going to be the next Charlie? But there'll be somebody and there'll be probably more than one. But can you be the leader of a youth movement when, you know, like, I don't know what the definition of youth is anymore, right? I'm in my mid 40s. So like half the country is younger than me. But can you be the leader of 17, 18, 19, 20 year olds if you're, you know, got a little bit of a receding hairline, a little gray hair on the chin? No, I think what Charlie will do is Charlie will take this gener. This will be his generation. So as this generation ages, Charlie will continue to be a figurehead for them. There will be other people that will end up on these college campuses, talking on these college campuses. That's how I see it. I mean, look at someone like Ben Shapiro. I mean, how long can Ben Shapiro talk to 20-year-olds? It's been too long already. It's been too long already. But even now, a person like Ben Shapiro or Charlie Kirk, I mean, Charlie Kirk goes to college campuses. He's almost 30. He goes to college campuses. He gets on stage. He starts asking people a bunch of questions, and then he strikes them down, and he pats himself on the back and slaps up a video of him striking down a lib the lib is 10 years younger than him. I mean, bravo. Like, what the heck is that? These are very easy targets. So let me ask you this. You know, as we're recording this, we're a couple of weeks away from the next midterm election. We're a couple of years away from the next presidential election. All of this work, the 60, 80 years of work, the billions of dollars, the millions of people, Will it add up to this country being fundamentally different than we thought it was? Are they tapping into something that is blatant that many of us don't want to admit is there? Or is it just they do it, they do it more often, they repeat it, they have the resources, and eventually a good plan and a lot of money and dedication will be no plan, no dedication, and no money? Yeah, I mean, it's a really tricky question because I think what we're all asking ourselves is, is what we're seeing just a backlash that the country's moving forward, that we're becoming more progressive, that there's more and more equality and more people sort of being brought into the fold, or is this backlash going to turn into the country? And I think the big question here is, will the Democrats make like the Republicans did 50, 60 years ago? Are they going to take this moment of crisis this moment of loss, this kind of level of devastation that so many Democrats feel, and are they going to get their act together? Are they going to get more organized? Are they going to get more collaborative? Are they going to figure out how to take the big tent that is the Democratic Party and make it a tent that inside the tent people actually are able to put aside their differences and move towards winning elections or not? I have hope. I mean, you have to have hope at this point, right? I think what I'm saying and what my book is saying and what a lot of people are realizing that the Democrats are in dire straits and that they have to figure something out. If they can do that, I think we will be in a much better shape. What will happen if they can do that? Because I think the biggest problem that you have right now is the Democratic brand is shit. And the other big problem you have is that the Democrats, they cannot figure out how to message to people. They just cannot figure out what their message is. They cannot figure out what they bring to the table. And they cannot figure out how to communicate to people who live in this new world order, right? And what you're seeing now, right, as the polls are dipping, you're seeing the new blame because Democrats love to play the blame game, right? And so now they're going to blame and they're blaming the low information voters. We're hearing a lot about low information voters now, right? Like they're not getting the message. There's no such thing as low information voters. The problem is, is the Democrats can't figure out how to message to the people who are supposed to be their constituents. 
So the reason I bring this up is if the Democrats can figure this out, and the way you message is you message collectively, right? It's repetition. It's uniform messaging. That's what the Republicans do so well. So if the Democrats can use this crisis to figure out how to collaborate and unify their message, we'll be okay. If they can't figure that out, who knows what's going to happen? So I travel the country a lot. I spend far more time with Democrats, both voters, activists, leaders, donors, than I ever thought I would. And I get asked the question about messaging, Kyle, all the time. The problem with your messaging is that messaging is a derivative of belief. And no one knows what the hell you believe in because none of y'all can agree on what you believe in. And I think there are some of you who believe in stuff that is probably pretty mainstream, but you're scared to death of those who don't agree with it coming after you. The inter-Eastern warfare between the young Democrats and the elder Democrats is just a huge, huge problem. And there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of mistrust. You know, obviously, we always go back to the defund the police is like the best example is that defund the police gets launched. Right. And for two, three years, mainstream Democrats spend their time trying to convince voters that they don't believe in defund the police. How did that happen? Right. Reed, how did that happen? How it happened was that the young progressive groups do not get funding or support or communication or assistance from the party central, right? And so what happens is they go off on their own and they come up with messaging that's totally alienating. They launch the messaging. Then their elders come in mad as hell. They've created all these problems for people and then they attack them. I think that could have been avoided and those types of messaging gaffes, which are fundamental and huge for the Democrats, those gaffes can be avoided if these progressive groups are better funded and better supported and better connected to the party. And if they're better connected to the party, that defund the police would have been a conversation in a room with a bunch of really good strategists, moderates, progressives. This is what we want to do. We want to rein in the police. We want to stop police killing black men. Great. We all agree. Bad idea. We want to stop this. How do we communicate to the American people that we want to stop this and we care about this? Let's lay out some options. What about this? What about saying this? What about saying that? That's going to alienate my people. Okay, that's going to alienate my people, right? You know who works like that? Republicans. They get together and they have these conversations. And you know what Democrats say about that? It's nefarious. They're meeting. They're organizing. They're working together. Their ideas are nefarious. But the action, the actual organizing part of it, that's good politics. There are many things that Democrats all agree on, and one of them ought to be beating the Republicans. <laughs> but that seems to constantly take a back seat to these other fringe issues that apparently we have to discuss now. Well, and I'll say this, as you probably know, there's a great book by a guy named Richard Ben Kramer, who wrote in 1990 a book called What It Takes about the 88 presidential campaign. And the bottom line, after a thousand pages, is... Are you going to do the thing to win the other guy won't do? And the answer for Republicans is always yes. And almost to a candidate, the answer for Democrats is no. A specific election is a zero-sum game. Someone is going to win and someone is going to lose. If you are not going to do what you need to win, then you will lose. And as Mitch McConnell famously said, winners make policy and losers go home. Yeah. Well, on that uplifting note, Kyle, 
Tell us where can our listeners find you online and where can they find more of your work? So my website, kylespencerjournalist.com. You can buy the book, Raising Them Right, where you purchase, as you said, fine books. Amazon is a great place, bookshop, wherever you buy books. And please friend me on Twitter at Kyle Y. Spencer. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok, now on TikTok, at Reed Galen, and on Instagram, at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Kyle Spencer, thank you for joining us. Thank you for this book. And everybody else, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. Also, be sure to check out our growing LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. We're speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, and Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Monday at noon Eastern. Plus, we'd love you to check out our newest show, The Game We're In, with Maya May and Trigby Olson, which airs Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.